0: Development Policy Centre podcast. In this episode of the podcast we bring you the recording of our second annual aid budget breakfast looking at budget 2014-15. PowerPoint slides are available on our website devpolicy.anu.edu.au. Good morning everyone welcome to our second annual aid budget breakfast here at the Development Policy Centre. My name's Ashley Betteridge, I'm a research officer here at the centre, and I'd like to thank you all for joining us this morning. We had to upgrade to a bigger venue from last year's event, so it's great to see such strong interest in aid. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet, and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people past and present. We've seen some significant changes in aid since last budget, and since the election in September, And if you've already seen the Dev Policy blog this morning, you will have some idea of the main topics that we're going to talk about today. Firstly, the cut, and also transparency. I know you all can't wait to hear what our panellists have to say, but I'll just quickly let you know how we're going to run the event today. Um, We have four speakers, and they're going to each make a presentation, and then we'll open up the floor to questions. So I'll just remind our speakers, please do keep to your time. So without any further ado, I'm going to ask our first speaker to come up. Tony Swan is a research fellow here at the Development Policy Centre, and he's going to give us a big picture perspective on the budget, looking at the macroeconomic and fiscal context. right, thanks Tony. Good
1: morning everyone. Um, So I'm going to talk about the macroeconomic context of a budget. Now there's a lot in this budget, as you probably know, some of which um you like, which you won't, depending on your preferences. Um, but what I want to focus on today is some of the underlying structural issues in this budget and, and what that means for aid funding, both over the short to medium term and looking ahead in the, the longer term. Okay, so, First of all, let's have a look at the underlying uh, cash balance. Uh, you can see that um, we've had significant deficits over the last few years, and the time that it's going to take to bring us back to surplus indicates some of the, the um, how difficult some of these problems are. So, what are these problems? Uh, just before I move on, on, you can see that um, compared to last year's budget, uh this worsened, um, but has improved slightly from uh, the December 2013 uh, new year economic fiscal outlook statement. But these structural problems that I'm talking about, I'm talking about them in the short to medium term, and that's roughly the the period of the forward estimates. I'm going to argue that uh, what Australia's got is a revenue problem And this revenue problem has occurred also at the same time as the end of the resources period. And that's compounded that problem. But looking ahead, there's going to be significant structural adjustment in the Australian economy, and of course this is going to have an impact on Australia's fiscal position. Uh, And what I'm talking about in particular are the fiscal effects of demographic change. Um, and that is also occurring over, over a period where, um, historically, um, Australia's had declined in productivity over quite some time now, and uh, there's nothing to indicate that that's going to be reversed um, over this long term, although it is possible.
2: Okay, this chart
1: here shows um, total revenue and total expenses <coughs> share of GDP. And you can see from around 2007 that there was a substantial drop in um, total revenue as a share of GDP. So, yes, that's uh, coincided with the GFC, um, but that's not the whole story. In fact, probably um, the thing to know most is the, um, the tax cuts that occurred around this time. Okay. So why are these the Howard and tax cuts, So why why did these tax cuts take place? Well we had the, the resources boom this is in the middle of the resources boom um, and together with inflation leading to bracket creep um, uh, revenue was, was looking quite sound. But what government tends to do, at uh, least historically, has been to to give these tax breaks lower uh, income taxes um, in lieu of the Bracket Creek and of course this did happen over the period of the GFC and uh, has led to substantial reduction in, in revenue and you can see uh, and we'll see later on that falling uh, export prices has contributed uh, to this problem but also with the GFC and uh, the big fiscal stimulus uh, package that the government of the day brought in um, impacted on the expenditure side, thus giving us the deficits uh, over this period.
2: Okay, so let's let's dig a little bit deeper.
1: Um, Why has revenue um, been so low? (coughs) Well, lower-than-expected economic growth doesn't count this on this. Uh, you can see the the dip in pointer. You can see the dip in real GDP around 2008. Um, yes, it did fall, but by no means as fall as than what was expected at the time. Um, so it wasn't too bad, and it did recover towards uh, trend levels pretty soon after. Although over the estimates, it is looking immediately, immediately solid. <coughs> and of course, um, the end of the resources boom is now a reality. So here we're looking at the uh, terms of trade and um, the blue, the well, this green-yellow line represents the actual number. Um, the blue represents what was expected around the time of the last budget and you can see that they clearly didn't, didn't appreciate the um, full extent of, of decline in term trade back there. Um, so it remains to be seen over the, this forecast period um, what will happen is not the full consensus that this trend will So looking at total revenue, so both tax cuts and the declining terms of trade have made um, revenue slow to recover. If we break down this, this graph into two periods, we can see that around um, the end of the Howard government and the beginning of the government, that revenue essentially is stopped. But um, stopped uh, the... Um, uh, Fuel excise um, that uh, increases in the fuel excise, or ta- uh, income tax cuts, and with um, the Rudd the government came these these continued. Um, but if you're looking ahead to the uh, forward estimates period, you can see that that whilst revenue is for the, this year's budget is below last year's, <coughs> it's pretty much. Um, reverted back to um, growth levels that we would would expect historically. That reflects both bringing back um, the fuel excise uh, its increases in the fuel excise over time um, and the debt levy. but what I argue is that a lot of the heavy lifting here is being done by inflation, bracket. So that's, that's an important part of the revenue story, um, moving forward. <coughs> so in light of this, this historical practice of uh, cutting income taxes, um, in response to this bracket, cream, the question is, can this continue in the future, especially given the... Uh, um, sort of spending profile of the government um, as the population ages. Looking at spending, okay, you can see, I think this graph indicates that the changes in spending in this year's budget pretty much reflect a reprioritization of spending rather than cuts. You can see that um, this past year, that spending has increased um, when the Avic government came in and then they've made some effort to to control that spending over the next up to year. But looking beyond that, in fact expenditure is exactly what was predicted <coughs> a year ago the last And if you look at the breakdown of spending by by sector, uh, you can see that um, the blue line is health spending, and that's been increasing over time. And, and that's an indicator of, of this longer term structural problem uh, due to our ageing population. I haven't got expenditure on, on age pension and things like that, um, but that's happening in the background. Uh, education um, is... is it's flat over the, um, over the, the uh, projections in the budget. Um, and what you don't see there is is the amount of uh, spending that's been, especially in health, and it's been pushed to the states. Um, there's apparently 80 billion worth over the next 10 years. And that's something that, that is going to put a lot of pressure on, on um, the fiscal position, not just the Commonwealth's, but Australia as a whole. Looking at defence, you can see that that's actually increased. And that is a priority of this government, and they have um, stated a commitment to increase defence, spending to 2% um, in the area of 2% of And finally, looking at ODA, well, it's so small, it's really hard to see, see uh, what's going on there, but I can show you what's happening in the next slide. Okay. So, basically, to summarise, this whole situation, both over the poor estimates and looking long term, adds up to a difficult financial position um, for ODA. At the bottom here shows, in this sort of purple, is um, historical numbers for ODA as a share of gross national income. And you would all know that um, there has been, or emotionally still is, a target of 0.5%. And this line here is the projections in the last budget, um, which was slowly but uh, Slowly getting to that level, um, but of course we the drop there. And the black is the um, current projections for ODA. And that's declining from a high of about 0.36. They're about interesting, uh, to tell you. Now it's always quite interesting to compare ODA to Defence. Um, as I mentioned, they have their target of um, 2% of GDP. And historically, it has been well over 2%, um, but over the last 10 years, has declined. And looking over the forward estimates, and having in mind um, this reaffirmed commitment by the government to get to 2%, uh, tells, well, it's a telling story, because um, despite, despite the increases in um, the value of spending, <coughs> the actual share of spending of defence At GDP um, hasn't really changed very much, especially it's only slightly improved compared to last year's budget. And highlights inherent uh, difficulties with this sort of planning. Um, You all know with ODA we never got to the target and there were issues surrounding um, the ramp-up, the continual projections of increased spending to get to that target and never happened, and associated problems. And in a way, that that's, could well be happening with defence. And uh, an interesting question is defence and new aid. Um, so to conclude, I just want to highlight that, um, that yes, that this position um, is difficult for aid, for ODA, over the current projection period. Um, But it's probably not
0: going to improve. Thank you. All right, thank you, Tony. Next, I'm going to hear from Stephen House. For those that don't know Stephen, he's the director of the Development Policy Centre, and he is going to be talking to us about aid.
3: (laughs) All right, thanks, Ashley, and uh, good morning, everyone. Thanks for all for coming. and thanks to uh, the others on the, uh, in the centre, uh, Jonathan, Pryk, Matt Dornan, mm-hmm. Robin Davies, who all contributed to this is kind of a team uh, analysis. And uh, it does really build off uh, what uh, Tony's just uh, given. Um, you know, he's given the big picture, and now I want to narrow down into aid. And yeah, just to give away the headlines, this is my take or our take on the budget. It is a little bit disappointing, I think, from an aid point of view. This is what... The coalition, you know, more or less promised going into the election. Now, this is the the blog we did when they made the, their aid cut. Oh, sorry, when they made their aid uh, announcement, it was a cut. <laughs> At the, in September, I think, last year, they said there'd be annual increases in nominal funding in the aid budget in line with CPI, and they actually released some numbers if you remember in their savings document. So, based on those numbers, we produced this graph, and we knew that 2013-14 would take a hit, but we thought based on their numbers, that they would actually recover in 2014-15, and then stabilise with CPI. So in real terms, in 2016-17, we'd be back where we were in 2012-13. So I'd say that's the most accurate representation of how the Coalition went into the election. Uh, I think they signalled in the run-up to the budget that this might not be what we get, and they started talking about increases up to CPI rather than increases with CPI. Uh, but just keep this in mind, right? So this is, uh, you know, five and five. Uh, in terms of election, in terms of what we got, what we're going to get in this, what we got in this budget, it's five and four point five. So this was the uh, cut um, in January, right? They've already started cutting this year's budget, and then they've kept next year's budget uh, exactly the same. Uh, following year budget exactly the same. Then they start to increase with CPI. So in real terms just inflation you get down to 4.5 and then you you stay there. So this is the 10% cut that we uh, have put out on our blog. This is how you get there. You get uh, some nominal cuts in the current year. You get a flat nominal aid budget in the next two years. You add onto that inflation and this is how you get the 10% or 9.7% uh, cut. So it's it's not unprecedented, and in fact, in the uh, Costello-Howard, in their first budget, they cut aid by nine percent, and the second budget they cut aid by one percent. So that's ten percent. So here it's just being spread out over a few years. It's not unprecedented, but it is significant. And uh, just to put it in a sort of longer-term context, you know, we're now in the we were scaling up, we're now scaling down. Uh, this is uh, ODA just looking over a longer-term, longer-time period, you know, that $2 billion mark slowly increasing, and then it took off last decade, might reach $5 billion. and now it's uh, on, a, on a downward trajectory. So then if that's on a downward trajectory, of course all those ratios are going to be on a downward trajectory. And this is the ODI to GNI, the Generosity Index. So it was on a long downward trajectory that reversed last decade, Right. It was meant to get to 0.5, never made it. Got to 0.35, and now it's uh, heading south uh, again. So yeah, I really want to emphasise this is the end of an era. We're in a new aid era now. And just to you know illustrate that here, are the nominal increases in aid since uh, 2000, first under Howard, um, and then under Rudd and Gillard, and uh, you know those nominal increases are, are no longer uh, to be seen. Right, we're uh, until you know, we get to some out to 2016, 17. Uh, so we are in a very different era and also just I think this is useful putting that asylum seeker funding issue in perspective. I think one of the good things about this budget we aren't going to see that money diverted for asylum seekers uh, on shore because there aren't, there aren't any or there aren't going to be any. Um, so that's, that saves, that frees up $375 million for development. That's good for development right? if you're into <laughs> development. But that's, you know, that's about this far, right? So that's sort of one year of this series of increases, you know, is what the coalition is delivering back to the aid budget, right? But the, the gen, it's good, but the general, it doesn't change the general picture, uh, which is one of stagnation. I'll sort of pick up this point that really flows on from what Tony said. I mean, the message being given is, you know, we've got this very difficult uh, fiscal position, and Tony's uh, shown it is a difficult fiscal position. Therefore, we've got, you know, big expenditure cuts, And Tony's cast some doubt on that. In fact, the expenditure seems to be increasing. It was a pretty tight expenditure situation even before the coalition, right? So it's a continuation of that. Um, And so, therefore, the message is aid has to play its part. But, in fact, if you look at the numbers, you see aid is bearing a disproportionate burden of the uh, fiscal adjustment, right? And what this is really about is we already had a tight expenditure outlook, but the government, you know, for all the criticism, the previous government, for all the criticism it received for not getting 0.5, was channeling more funds to aid, giving aid more emphasis. That's now been reversed. And maybe that, some of that emphasis is going to defence, some of it's going to infrastructure, but it's going it's going elsewhere. And so aid is now uh, bearing a disproportionate burden of the fiscal adjustment. And you can see that um, if you look out to 2017-18, so the entire forward estimates... Now, here's that 10% cut, right, which is achieved by 2015-16, and then it just stays the same, because after that, it just increases for inflation. But look at non-aid uh, expenditure. So uh, non-aid expenditure does uh, take a hit this year, right? So this year is a, is a tight year. Uh, but over time, non-aid expenditure grows, and it actually increases by... This is after inflation, after inflation... Actually, my blog last night I put ten percent. It's actually nine percent. Um, so you've got they're going in different directions, right? Aid's going down by ten percent. Everything else is going up by almost ten percent. So definitely, aid has moved down the list of priorities uh, for this government. And uh, this, you know, pretty much the uh, graph—one of the graphs Tony had—but on a smaller scale, so we can see the differences. Here is, uh, you know, over this period, beginning under. Howard and Downer, we saw aid taking a higher priority. That was continued under Rudd and Gillard, but now we're seeing it going back. We haven't quite you know, reached the level of 2,000, but we're heading in that, in that direction. So that's uh, the aid quantity uh, picture. It's uh, not a very pretty one. Of course, it could have been worse, and people were relieved that at least there wasn't a nominal cut, but you know, it's not a good picture, and it's certainly not in line with what the government... Uh, committed to the elections. What about effectiveness, which is our passion, the Development Policy Centre? Uh, composition and quality. What can we say about that? Well, not a lot because uh, there's not a lot of information. But uh, we have a go. We've had a preliminary go. And if you look at the big picture, you can think that there are about three or four losers and three or four winners uh, in the budget. And uh, focus on on this year. You know, it's this year since the nominal amount is just fixed, right? Any winners have to be offset by losers elsewhere. So who are the losers? Well, the asylum seeker funding, right? The asylum seeker processing costs are no longer going to be covered by the aid budget, so that frees up $375 There is a uh, refocusing of the aid program on the immediate region, and so continuation of cuts to Africa, and not just sub-Saharan Africa, but Middle East and North Africa as well. And uh, there's cuts to uh, Latin America. And about, that frees up about $100 million. And then very large cuts in aid administration are uh, freeing up about 120 million, and you can see that's uh, you know the d- departmental spending, that's the administrative cost of aid, does take a sharp dive um, this uh, in this year. So overall, that frees up uh, almost 600 million. Right? So it's quite a lot, right? Out of a total budget of. Uh, of 5 billion, it's almost 10%. So, you know, for, for a stagnant budget, it is, it is a very interesting one and quite a dynamic one. I think that um, makes the analysis interesting. So, who are the winners? Well, 60 million for PNG, and that's to do with the Manus Island, not for the facility, but the broader agreement around Manus. Uh, 55 million for regional organisations and initiatives, and we can see that's largely putting back money that was cut. Uh, this year, I guess they were an easy target to cut, and, and that money's kind of been uh, given back this year. Uh, humanitarian, again, it was easy to cut last year, and that money's been given back to humanitarian. There's a slightly increased contingency, as you'd expect, if you've got some extra money to allocate. And then but the, most of it, you know, we just don't know how that money... It's, it's, it hasn't really been announced. That's just $380 million yeah. in what are called cross-regional programs, Right? And uh, what are these? Well, we do know, and I'm, any of my colleagues are here, you'll be happy to know, scholarships have been fully protected from any cuts. And they're going to increase, and they're going to hit that 4,500 target that was announced in, well, at least reiterated in the 2013, in the, un, under the last Labor budget. So scholarships are not being cut anyway at all. They're going to increase, but that's, a, that's only about 40 million. Uh, most of this uh, is money that's being held in reserve uh, and... Um, I think we'll, there are no new initiatives in this budget. Uh, I think they're going to come with a new policy, but I'll, I'll come to that in a minute. So that's, the, uh, those, those, that's how the savings are being spent. And you can see it's kind of a mixed bag. I think a lot of people would support uh, these changes, uh, although you might think that the aid administration cuts have gone too far. A lot of uh, good staff have left. Um, and uh, you know, a lot of people would support increased aid for humanitarian. Uh, you know, I think question marks around PNG, uh, regional organisations, and just, you know, we really don't know how most of that money is going to be spent. Uh, just a few other graphs. This one shows that uh, increased regional focus um, with the decline in uh, not only... Um yeah, sorry, this is Africa. Here's Africa and the Middle East, uh, South and West Asia, and then uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. So... East Asia and the Pacific are protected. And uh, this is some work Matt Dornan did, and we put up a separate blog on sort of country winners and losers. And you can see there's a, you know, a um, fair few winners and losers, but um, I've been I've been over the main ones. Other changes, there aren't that many other changes, I think. There is a doubling of the uh, DAP, which is the, the Development Action Programme, Sure, but it's the uh, amount of uh, funding under the control of the uh, heads of mission. So that's sort of DFAT uh, asserting greater control, but it's still a very small program. There's a very tiny increase in the ANCP, which is the sort of core funding for NGOs. Uh, ACR is uh, constant in funding. That's agricultural research. AFP is actually down, I think, to do with the Ramsey withdrawal, although it's scaled up in PNG. In terms of multilateral allocations... Um, overall seem to be either unchanged. For, there were some cuts announced in January. I think you say no further cuts, but still some undecided uh, allocations uh, with, with replenishments coming up. And Gavi is singled, singled out as you know, where the decision hasn't been made. So some of that might be in, those, in that cross-regional program allocation. Uh, there are a few uh, sort of disaggregated forward estimates in the main budget document and uh, these have a few uh, surprises, actually. Uh, PNG in the Pacific, you know, slight increase. East Asia, slight increase. But then this jump in the last year for uh, the rest of the world. I'm not clear you know, what that is for or if that's just something that's being held in reserve. Uh, emergency is flat. Uh, NGOs are flat. So, so much for this government being the friend of NGOs. And um, then this... Uh, you know, increase here in UN, Commonwealth and other international organisations. So again, perhaps this is not what you'd expect uh, from this government. And uh, I don't know which organisations these are, but if then Commonwealth is tiny, this government's not particularly well disposed to the UN, so you think perhaps this is good news for vertical funds, such as Gavi Global Fund or perhaps the Education Partnership. Um, so that's really uh, all I can share with you in terms of composition. As I said, there's not a lot of uh, detail in the budget. And if we look at what's missing uh, from the budget, uh, the budget documentation, uh, they have country allocations but no sectoral allocations, either at the country level or at the aggregate level. That's because the policy framework is yet to be released. I think you know we had hoped at one point the policy framework and these new benchmarks would be released with this budget, but the government's... Uh, Held them back. I think there was sort of strong central push to, um, you know, minimise other material. Uh, So that's going to come out in a few weeks. And uh, you know, I think it's it's reasonable to say that that large chunk of uh, 380 million in cross-regional program, you know, will contain funding for initiatives to go along with the new policy uh, or and all the new benchmarks. And it's striking there are no, as far as I can tell, there are no new initiatives uh, announced. In the budget and I guess the biggest thing of all that's missing is the blue book so those of you, you know, who are familiar with aid you know will miss the blue book which is the aid budget uh, which has been brought out uh, every year since 1999 or in fact uh, Murray told me since the 80s there's been a separate book on uh, aid well no longer um, there is now more information there's some more information in the main budget documents so there is now an ODA table in the main budget documents And uh, there's a lot more information uh, up on the web. So some of the country information that you used to find in this blue book, you can now find uh, on the AusAid website. But you know, I'll end on this point that if you are going to go into the virtual world and use the web instead of a a book, it does uh, put a much greater onus on the uh, web to be both up-to-date and consistent. I think that's something that uh, AusAid struggled with in the past and which... Uh, is still a problem so while you do see up to date new country allocations for you know, PNG, Indonesia and so on uh... you know when we were looking last night for what the multilateral allocation was and you go to the multilateral page you know in fact you find the funding allocation for 2011-12 <laughs> so very uh... out of date and that's not the only uh... example and i will just uh... because we were looking at the web last night you know, we are always uh, advocates of aid transparency and we were heartened by the new ministers, or the, now the ministers' embrace of transparency and wanting to push transparency forward, uh, that, you know, these project web webpages are, are now no longer searchable through the AusAid website. You can Google them if you know what project you're looking for, but you can't actually find them within the AusAid uh, DFAT website. I hope that's just something to do with putting up new information for the budget. Perhaps they ran out of time and some of this uh, got lost, but I hope this project information will come back uh, into the uh, DFAT um, aid web pages. So to, uh, to wrap up, this is um, you know, what we've been able to discern from the budget uh, in the brief time we've had so far. Uh, there is going to be less aid. There is a 10% real cut uh, spread out over a three-year period. Uh, and it is less transparent aid. There is no blue book. And the website is not yet an adequate replacement for the blue book. Uh, in terms of allocation decisions, certainly some good ones, uh, some uh, bad ones, some question marks. And uh, there's, there's still a lot to be revealed about actual allocation decisions in the budget. And then just, you know, so we end on a positive note, right? What are the opportunities... Well, you know, to some extent we have to reserve some judgment because um, the policies and benchmarks are still to come out. It's unfortunate they weren't released with the budget, but in fact, some of the budget documentation, the budget highlights said that it will be in the coming weeks. So we may see you back here soon. Um, and uh, the other opportunity is that you know, these cuts are spread out over several years, and forward estimates are never locked down in stone. And transparency can always be improved. And so certainly better outcomes are possible in the coming years for both quantity and transparency. I'll just end with the observation. It did surprise me that there was so little campaigning uh, around the aid budget uh, this year. Uh, if you think of all the grief the previous government had, you know, when it was increasing aid, there wasn't increasing aid enough. Uh, there seemed to be very little pressure on this government uh, even to uh, live up to its election commitments and um, you know I, I guess in the in the coming years uh, I think there will certainly be lots of opportunities uh, for uh, more discussion analysis perhaps campaigning around uh, issues both to do with quantity and uh, transparency and more broadly quality uh, so thanks very much.
0: Thank you, Stephen. Lots to think about there. (laughs) Um, Next, I'm going to welcome up Joanna Lindner. She's the Head of Policy, Aid and Development Effectiveness at the Australian Council for International Development, which is Australia's peak body for
2: development NGOs. So, Thanks, Jo. Thanks, Ashley, and thanks, Stephen, for that very nice introduction into some of my remarks this morning. Um, We've just heard all about the macroeconomic context, the figures of volume, GNI ratios, trends... So I just wanted to make three comments about things that stood out as we were considering the budget last night. So the first is that the aid budget has been the target of savings once again. So notwithstanding that it's been a difficult budget environment overall, it would be remiss to stand here and not point out that the government did announce savings on the back of the aid program to the tune of $7.6 billion over five years, as they have said. we have looked at the figures and um, given the delay in indexing aid growth to CPI, this amounts to approximately 164 million of lost aid this year and around 1.02 billion in the forward estimates. So this is really important because in the lead up to this budget, we've heard from senior coalition members and in fact from all sides of politics that selling the aid program to the average voter can be quite difficult. And that difficulty has translated into these broken promises slashed budgets and series of announcements where politicians say that the aid will contribute to significant overall budget savings despite the aid program being only 1.3% of the federal budget. So whose problem is this? To some extent it's certainly the problem of all of us here in the room who I hope believe as I do that aid is an important <coughs> investment in Australia's future. But NGOs are quite adept at having that conversation with the public. In the last year for which we have data, $1.1 billion was raised by overseas aid organizations directly from the public, which accounts for two out of every three dollars that NGOs raised. ACFID members are regularly communicating with their supporters, telling them about the work that they're doing, the work that remains to be done, and the vital contribution that Australians can make to improving the lives of the world's poorest. Is there more that we could do? Of course. Is, there, is this an area where we could collaborate more and really increase the development communications we have with the Australian public? Certainly. And while much has been made about Australian NGOs being responsible for selling this message, as I think Stephen was just alluding to, I don't think that the buck necessarily stops with us. The government has a role to play in communicating with the public and strongly selling the message that global poverty is not in our interests and that the impact that poverty can have on peace and security, economic growth, and sustainable development mean that it's valuable and necessary investment. So I think that there is a need for a better public conversation on aid, and I think we all need to be a part of it. And that brings me to my next point, which is around the transparency and accountability that this budget does or does not communicate. So the difficulty with the budget, as Stevens just pointed out, is that it would be very hard to have a meaningful conversation with the public on the basis of what can be identified in in this budget. Despite the recommendation by the National Commission of Audit report, the ministerial statement for aid and the transparency around the aid program was abandoned. And while we certainly commend the efforts of the DFAT staff who've updated the website, again, as Stevens pointed out, websites often go out of date quite quickly, and the information that can be found there is not quite at the same level as the previous Blue Book information. ACFIDS now participated in three consultative discussions with the government on the aid aid benchmarking process, and we're surprised that given the emphasis so far that's been placed on accountability for results, the government hasn't led by example through the budget process. Detailing not only the level of expenditure, but the allocation of funds by policy policy priority area, would surely be an important part of this accountability. Without it, we're largely unable to see how implementation would progress, on what it would progress and for what outcomes. We've been promised that this is coming in the coming weeks with the aid policy framework and benchmark announcements and that we will be, the level of information will be restored to what we've previously seen in the blue books. If all aid stakeholders will be mutually accountable to one another for the results of Australian aid, then we would think that this would be a minimum requirement. But it's not all doom and gloom. Um, Despite the forthcoming policy announcements, um, which will confirm what the policy priorities are, we think that it's been made quite clear over a series of speeches that the minister's made, both since she's been in opposition and right through um, to her last speech marking the 799th anniversary of the Magna Carta, and then in the budget once again about where her priorities are for the aid program and what we can expect to see. So we expect that there will be a focus on economic growth and that that will have um, emphasis on both the productivity and participation aspects of growth. That will translate into a focus on aid for trade that addresses both major trade infrastructure areas as well as linking individuals to the supply chain. We anticipate that the minister will continue to focus on the empowerment of women and girls and that health and education will continue to be a hallmark of the aid program. This is pleasing and it echoes a number of ACPD's policy asks over quite some time. We've consistently advanced the position that economic growth contributes to, but is not alone responsible for poverty alleviation and that unaided, growth may not be able to lead for growing opportunities for all to contribute to or to benefit from growing prosperity. We've seen promising signs in the budget last night where some program support in Indonesia, for example, explicitly speaks to the activities that will connect the bottom 20% of people to economic benefits. That's directly in line with what ACFID's outlined in our January paper on benchmarks for effective and accountable aid, and we've reiterated that need for economic growth initiatives to focus on the bottom 40% of people in our most recent submission to the inquiry on the role of the private sector in development. ACPD has also consistently spoken about the need to address the human barriers to participation and productivity, the preconditions for economic growth, if you will, health and education, the role of women in public life, and these are all areas that we think that the government will be focusing on when they make that announcement. So we look forward to getting more details when that comes and look forward to having the conversation with you all in the meantime and thereafter. Thank you.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Joey. Now we're going to hear from Mel Dunn, who is Vice President for International Development at URS and Chair of IDC Australia. And Mel is going to provide us with some insights from development contracts. Thanks,
4: Mel. Oh, thanks, Ashley, and uh, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here again. So for the best part of a decade, I've been coming to Canberra on Budget Night to hear of the future plans for the aid program and to catch up with colleagues and friends of the aid program. Yet yesterday, something was quite different for me. My plane was not delayed due to fog, which is quite usual this time of year. The sun was shining all day, and wearing a, a suit was really so I looked good and not to keep warm. And late in the afternoon I enjoyed a joke with the taxi driver uh, commenting how strange it seemed that the world was about to end at 7.30pm when the budget was released. <laughs> but as it turned out the world did not end and I argue the aid budget is also not a signal of total doom and gloom. Unless of course your job is to write headlines for newspaper articles on the website that we we'll see this morning. Is it a broken commitment by flatlining and not indexing to CPI immediately? Well maybe it is. Is the aid budget lacking generosity? I guess that probably depends on how one defines generous in the context of an overall tight budget for Australia. Soon after this government was elected, I commented in an interview that I was cautiously optimistic about the directions of the aid program while reflecting on the signals that the Foreign Minister was giving. Leading into last night's budget release, I was still reasonably optimistic. Today I remain cautious, unsurprised, and believe there is enough to be optimistic about... But for such optimism to be realised, a few more planets need to align. In the next few minutes, I intend to share some observations about the budget information that has been made public and some thoughts on where opportunity might still present and where there might be some gaps or questions to still ask. But I'd just like us to pause for a moment and consider just seven small words. 5.0139 billion. I don't think it's an insignificant number and I think we need to just, just reflect on that. Is not 0.5 or 0.7% of GNI, it's not six, seven or eight billion dollars, but it still is five billion and I think we need to keep that in mind. So our challenge is to stop thinking about how that amount should be spent, our challenge should be to come up with ways to make that amount work hard, to lead to effective outcomes and create leveraged opportunities such that the results far outweigh what five billion alone could achieve. I'd like to discuss just three things. The policy framework, which should be quick, the forward estimates, and the level of detail in the regional focus. In the absence of policy being released last night, the closest thing we can draw from is the paragraph from the joint ministerial statement that the focus will be on the drivers of economic growth, trade, infrastructure, education, health, and empowering women and girls. Thankfully, the next sentence in that joint statement tells, tells us that there is a new aid policy coming and that will guide the program and there will also be the performance framework. Personally, I am a little disappointed the policy was, is still yet to be released. But I think, and also as Joanna's commented, we've heard enough snippets that's been spoken about and reported to get a bit of insight about what might eventually be communicated in the policy. One element in particular I expect will feature is the increased role of the private sector in contributing to some of the drivers of economic growth and poverty reduction. What is less clear is the sequencing of thinking to policy to practice. We are informed that the aid policy is likely to be released in the next few weeks. And even if that's pushed back a little, one must imagine it's close to complete. Yet there is still a live parliamentary inquiry into the role of the private sector in promoting economic growth and reducing poverty in the Indo-Pacific region. Submissions to that inquiry only closed last Thursday. And I've been told that discussions, hearings and consideration of such submissions are not being rushed to ensure evidence is to consider to inform future directions. So what does that mean for a new aid policy with an imminent release? And what, if any, impact might that have on the forward estimates? (coughs) Well, the forward estimates have been shared at an aggregate level. The budget will hold at around that $5 billion mark before index to CPI. I argue at a granular level there's still a lot of detail that is absent. It is possible that greater clarity about forward projections exists, but at the same time, we are still awaiting the release of the performance framework, which we expect will include the performance benchmarks for the aid program. The consultation paper that formed part of the process to consider the establishment of these performance benchmarks stated early and very clearly that the intent was to improve accountability of the aid program and link performance to funding. Accountability and transparency is excellent, as is performance linked funding. But what, if any, relationship does this have to greater specificity or otherwise of forward estimates? How does the importance of funding predictability, as as was discussed in the review of aid effectiveness in 2011, correlate with such information? One of the authors in the room, Stephen, was part of that, and I'd be keen to think of what your views are on, on the concept of predictability in that sense. In terms of the regional focus, there's no great surprise that the focus has been honed in on the Asia-Pacific region, where they've commented an increase in investment from 89 to 92% of the program. For the most part, as has been presented this morning, investment volumes at the country level, you know, there are some winners and losers, and there are some things that have remained reasonably constant. What's not also surprising, though disappointing, is the change to the Africa program in particular. And I think that what we still need to see is greater detail in a reducing program and the information that's presented on the website is, it still seems needs to be a greater level of honing to ensure investment is well targeted and not diluted. Generally the information that has been shared at this point about the country and regional focus as the web updates seems to be sparse and stylized for a web audience as opposed to a sophisticated audience like I think we have here today. Now this reaction might in fact be part of my own separation anxiety to the Blue Book, but I think, it's, I think it's a little more fundamental than that. I do think this talks of transparency, but I'm not talking transparency in the context of trust. I actually don't think there's any reason to lack trust. I take the Foreign Minister's word that transparency will be part of the future fabric and I, I hope that we all hold that to account. I'm really commenting on transparency from the concept of lost or maybe delayed opportunity. If we recall some of the top-level findings from the recent aid stakeholder survey that was led by the Development Policy Centre here, one aspect that was broadly consistent across all surveyed stakeholders was that we all are in this for the right reasons, and our reasons are remarkably the same. As such, I firmly believe that each of us, NGOs, private sector, public sector, academia and individuals, we want to understand the details so that we can see how and where we can contribute to the aid program. It is in this context that I argue transparency, and the timeliness of information is essential and might be one aspect where a little more work can be done. I am not attempting to paint a rose-tinted view of the world here. We cannot ignore the concept of vested interests, another finding from the stakeholder survey. But I firmly believe that those of us who are in this for the right reasons genuinely want to contribute. And those of us who are in this for the wrong reasons, natural selection will sort them out. From an IDC perspective, I think this means drawing on our members' long history of involvement in and with the Australian aid program. From a broader aid industry perspective, I suggest this means breaking down artificial barriers between different actors in the aid program. For none of us are the solution to everything, yet together we might get a little closer to the results we all seek. I'm encouraged by more regular discussion and engagement between IDC and ACFID, and Mark, the engagement you and your team I personally value. I think there's a recognition in your executive that we do each have a role to play, and I think we need to keep that momentum going. I believe we're at a moment in time. We have a choice collectively and individually. I agree with you, Stephen, that we are in a new era, and I think each of us, and as an industry, we need to evolve also. We can choose to be disappointed that we are not on a journey to a magical percentage of GNI. We could choose to focus on what we are likely to get or to lose. Or we could acknowledge that this government is still investing $5 billion on the aid program and if we are in this for the right reasons, we will grab this challenge collectively, recognise our relative strengths and harness them to leverage efforts and create a better world. It is a choice and I choose cautious optimism and a commitment to working together and I hope we each take up that challenge. Thank you.
0: Great. Well, I'll now invite all of our speakers to come up front. Um, we've got a good amount of time for questions, which is fantastic, so I hope you've all been thinking of some. Um, we'll take a couple of questions at a time, I think, and then come back to the panel to discuss. So uh, if you can have a show of hands of people who want something to ask.
1: Hello. I just wanted to ask uh, if, if I use in a new era, how... How does this new era affect the organisation of DFAT, uh, be it culturally or physically in staff members? Any, any enlightenment there
0: Great. And we're just, just here.
5: Yes, yes, please. Two questions. <laughs> the uh, Treasury this morning said that this is in the context of the whole budget, that we can't be borrowing from overseas to pay people to send money overseas. I'd just like to see how you respond to that,
4: uh, uh, Tony. And second, the, um, this figure of the funds that have been restored to the aid budget from the actual process of 370
5: million or something, when the um, actual cost,
4: according to a media release a couple of weeks ago from the uh, Australian Church's Refugee Task Force, is $3.7 billion a year. Oh, okay. yeah.
0: Great. And if you just pass to your neighbour, next question.
5: <laughs> so I'll myself uh, two questions. One is uh, Stephen, just there's a, an amount of roughly about 686 million cross regional programs, and I'm just wondering if you could indicate what you think might be in that amount, where expenditure might go, and is the uh, is the government actually taking direct action to cost you by ceasing the publication of the Blue Book and uh, have us all publish out bits uh, of websites to try and piece together what's happening with the aid programs? Is actually part of their efficiency drive.
0: <laughs> Great. Well, I think we have a good first set of questions there to throw back to the paddle, So I'll
5: have a go at
3: some of them. Um, uh, obviously, the merger mm-hmm. of AUSA and is another dynamic. That, that also makes it a new year. So it's not just the eight cuts that make it a new year. Um, they go together. They did mention the budget. There would be 500, yes, it was 500 staff fewer. That seems a lot. And it's mainly X-Posite, X-Posite. So yeah, I think that's another just reinforces the message that this is a new euro. On the... Um, so that was never for offshore processing. Right, it was only for onshore processing, and it comes from the OECD DAC guidelines. Right? You're, under OECD DAC guidelines, you can't use aid for offshore processing for asylum seekers, but you can use it to support uh, basically onshore processing, things like care and sustenance of asylum seekers and refugees, but only for the first 12 months. That's the thing. So it, after 12 months, you can't you can't use it, and this government says, well, we don't. Do onshore processing anymore, uh, so we're not going to have any more, and so that's that's why that 375 million um, is uh, is no longer needed from the A budget. So I you know, agree with you that you know, offshore processing is a very expensive regime, and I guess it's a source of budgetary pressure, right, uh, indirectly on the A program. But it was never anything something the A program could uh, could finance. Uh, and Mark's question on the cross-regional programs. Yeah, that was one I highlighted as one of the big winners. And um, yeah, I think the increase over last year is $380 million. So that, that's the biggest. Right? It's more than half of the savings. Um, you know, which, if The savings come to almost $600. You know, it's almost 400 It's two-thirds of the savings. So what are these cross-regional programs? Um, is there a you know, specific sub Saharan Africa... South Asia initiative in the works? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, the only thing they've said is scholarships. So scholarships come under that, and they've said scholarships are going to increase by 40 million, yeah. I think, and take that number up to 4,500. But beyond that, it's not announced. Um, but it was just, there was a briefing provided by DFAT uh, yeah. last night. And you know if you look at the fact there are no new initiatives announced in this budget, there's a policy about to be released. Normally, when a policy is released, it comes with initiatives. Those so initiatives have to be funded, you know, this is somewhere where they're parking funds for future announcements.
1: And uh, just on that question about um, Treasurer's view that we shouldn't be borrowing from overseas to fund ODA. Well, um, it's not a view that I share. I think um, there are many amongst us here with a similar view. And the reason for that is that um, deficits are a normal part of fiscal policy, Right. Um, so, the idea that whenever we, and, and as by implication, any deficit will lead to, to additional borrowing, um, much of which will come from overseas. And Australia's debt levels have increased in recent times and are increasing with, with the projected deficits. Um, but the idea that you would link um, ODA to, to uh, well, you would reduce ODA. Um, if there are high levels of debt, it just doesn't make sense in the context of, of how, how um, governments operate. Um, and if you were to, then what would you, if you were to follow um, what the Treasurer's um, view, well, then what you have is, is ODA following the business cycle. So when it, it, um, when uh, there's a downturn in Australia's fiscal position leading to greater debt. Um, then you find that ODA would be, would be increasing and falling according to that, and obviously, that has large implications for um, effectiveness
4: of AIDS. So Can I just comment briefly on the question about DFAT? I think for me, there's two angles to that. One I think is for not in there's a real human dimension here. I think that it must be challenging for the staff from AusAID into DFAT and the broader department because it's played out heavily in the public domain and i think we all should remain cognizant of that but i think there's another thing to consider is that in the context of what is the aid and development industry not all the intellect sits in the department and i think you know many people in the room here today are part of the the support and delivery of the aid program so i think as we move forward i think we need to um, encourage and seek out better engagement in and with the department for if it's not of the policy decision, it's some of the learning that is being you know, created over time by the contracting community, by the NGO community, by individuals and by academia. And I, I don't believe that's been exploited to date as well as it could be. And I think that might be an important part of the future if there is to be significant change in the human resource makeup of the department. Um, should we take another round of questions?
0: Got back here? Um, okay, um. okay
3: um, so this is going to sound slightly self-serving. Sort of I'm uh, um, sorry, can I just ask you to introduce yourself yeah. as well so we as so. you're yeah. sort of from? Self-serving, as well as parents, <laughs> that's where I'm from. Um, so Tom <laughs> Davison from develop the effectiveness of I want to pick up on Milt's comment on the, that first question, because... Uh, I think it does raise an interesting process, issue, which is what is the value add of uh, AusAid slash DFAT staff and therefore what would be an ideal number and where should they be because there's not on effects to this in terms of will they go back to the model, just a straight project management type model uh, with larger initiatives uh, you know, completely devolved, etc, etc so what is actually the value of having Defect staff who knows something about aid
5: and can, you know, work, can actually benefit from the knowledge that's out there in the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, g- g'day, i oh, from uh, I guess that quite a bit of that 400 million cross-regional programs will be for uh, pro-business and aid trade initiatives. Just wondering what the panel thinks uh, that will look like and what, what are your recommendations on what it should look, look like? Um, we'll go back to the
3: panel with those ones, now. Yeah. Well, I could answer that one. Oh, I mean, I, just I don't know, right? <laughs> I mean, even, I'm just thinking about it, right? That 380 million, you know, to spend that all of my year on new initiatives. Anyone who works on a new initiative, you know how long it takes to get it off the ground, especially if it's a regional initiative like to get it going. So it, it is a bit hard to see. I'm sure there will be some announcements but how you, know, you get to, normally the announcement might be like 100 million or so, but over several years, like how do you get to 300 million in one, in one year? Um, I guess there are other things in that, like scholarships, there might be a contingency uh, in that. But um, yeah, it, it will be very interesting to see you know, the kind of um, I guess the sort of interesting announcements that you normally get in a budget we will get in a couple of weeks. That's all I can add
1: on. well it might be interesting to think about um, I know from the PNG context that uh from you know, the IDA perspective they're getting out of service delivery. Um, so I think in terms of where that additional money is going, um, depending on how quickly it takes, how much time it takes to get out of service delivery, um, I think there's there's a, a lot of support that is required um, in order to do that, both from within um, the delivery of ODA and changing this but also in working with partner governments. Uh, so I think that's some one avenue that,
3: Yes, yeah, I mean, just to bounce off that, I do think uh, the, you know, I wouldn't think like the pro-business and aid for trade is just going to come out through these cross-regional programs. Most of it will be in-the-country programs, and you can already see that in the in these web pages, the way they're written up, strong emphasis on private sector development, um, economic growth. And, but and just to take a little issue with Tony, I don't think I'd say that Isaiah will do that getting out of service delivery, uh, they're getting out of, you know, something, particular things like, uh, distributing drugs, buying drugs or buying textbooks, but, um, yeah, the Minister sent a strong message. It's still in education, it's still in health, every good in the late hospital. So I guess it's um, in these sectors, but in different ways um, than, than in the
4: past. But just to join maybe the two questions together, so without knowing the quantum or the timing, but if you think about the you know the internal intellect and the external intellect around the aid program and the you know, the economic development aid for trade, whatever labels are being bandied around. I think that's where better and deeper conversations and need to be had. You know, I think, you know, my my guess would be that a, a risk profile needs to be adjusted a bit. I think something around an innovation-type piece might might be part of a, a future initiative. That would be a guess I would have. But I think if you're looking at that, I think that risk dimension is got the appetite for... You know, when things don't always go the way we want them, is, that a, is it a failure or a learning? So I think there's a journey around that, which is why not that it all happened immediately, I think, would be a challenge.
2: Just to add to that as well, I think this idea of innovation, things not always going to plan, that speaks to sort of the value of having expertise and specialists in the department who can actually do something with that. Um, if you don't have that development expertise that can understand why things have gotten off track or where you can begin to find the corrections that are needed, then the aid program is going to lose that efficiency and effectiveness. In terms of what the ideal number of staffing is, Maybe it's an art more than a science, but I think that, that we need to maintain that development expertise inside the department as well as have the conversation more broadly across all of the intellectual capital that is this room and beyond. Great.
0: more questions?
6: Um, my name is Jennifer, I work at D5 formerly. Um, I guess I had a question about um, ODAS percentage of GNI. I. thought previously that had been by as commitment to the, um, the international kind of agreement to reach actually 0.7 by 2020. And obviously that's not going to happen if we're going to hold around 0.23 up to sort of 2017-18. Um, there's no very good job from the government by twenty twenty if there was um, will to do so. So I guess I am just kind of wondering, like is that is that um, something the government can easily walk away from that sort of commitment? I feel rather locations for the government not feeling that to to get to that point by twenty twenty, or is that just too much? Hi, it's Jane Davies from Caritas Australia. My question is, um, I'm hoping that those of you who are strong researchers can help with this. Um, research is increasingly showing that um, the impact of inequality on sustained economic growth, and we just curious what prospects for reducing inequality you expect to see um, when the new policy framework comes out. We've heard. Um, broad brushstrokes around so investment in women and girls, which is fantastic. I, investment in education and health, which is fantastic. Um, I'm not quite sure about the country allocations and how they might reflect um, opportunity for um, attacking those inequality issues. Um, so I'm just curious what you think in terms of opportunities in that regard. Um, I
0: just
5: uh, thanks, Dave Shearer from ACR, so I'm the constant in the room. <laughs> <I think so. laughs> um, in the 2011 Independent Review of Aid Effectiveness recommendation 23 asked for um, increased funds for medical research. Um, and last night one of the key um, uh, announcements by the Treasurer was a future medical research fund. Um, Stephen, you pointed out that a is falling by 10% and non-A is increasing by 10%. And Mel, you pointed out the importance of collaboration. I guess I'm interested in the panel's opinion about the opportunity that that may present around medical research. Great, we'll go back to the panel about that for the questions now. The
2: sure. Just on that question about ODA, the bipartisan commitment was to reach 0.5% by 2015, which got delayed under the former government. Um, so in terms of the consequence, it is what, um, what we deem it to be. So whether there's a public outcry about it and whether or not people feel pressure from their constituents, that's up to us. And then there's the perception from the international community. The, the international agreement was 0.7% by 2015, in line with the MDG. Um, and so our our peer nation will judge us by that level of contribution. So the UK, for example, which has a higher debt-to-GDP ratio than Australia, has just reached its 0.7% um, of DNI commitment this year. And a number of other nations reached that percentage. So, um, in
3: terms of how we compare with our peers, that's the the pressure that was felt like. Okay, well here we go. I, on this one, I, I mean, I agree. I think you, all, you know what was interesting. When you look last. we had a ten percent cut this time over three years. There was a ten percent cut in under Howard and Costello, but then the scale up started. That's when we started going to point five. Although the actual commitment didn't come later. So, what about this time? I'm sure that wasn't in the Ford estimates when they were cutting, right? they were going to bounce back. So, what about this time, even though it's not in the forward estimates, are we going to see it bounce back? Like, the government sort of, I don't know, becomes more generous or they come to see the importance of aid or there's more campaigning. Are we going to see that bounce back? I mean, I doubt. It. I doubt. It. I think we're in a different global environment than, than we were back then. But, I mean, it is fascinating how things have changed and uh, just shows I that mean, things do change a lot in uh, the way a country thinks about itself, about its responsibilities, and um, yeah, that is the opportunity. Forward estimates aren't fixed, right? so there is an opportunity for a bounce back, but I'd have to say it's, 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 I wouldn't, certainly wouldn't uh, count on it uh, in any way automatically. Uh, yeah, I was really glad Dave made that point about medical research. Um, I thought that was a really interesting initiative, a bit odd to tie it to co-payments. Oh. You know, I think that's very odd, but, but a great initiative, and we, you know, Australia has, well, first of all, think about the future of aid, future of aid, uncertain, We've got to get into global public goods. Uh, what are the global public goods? Well, we, we're really good at agricultural research, we do a lot of that. You know, Australia's also pretty good at medical research, so why aren't we focusing more on global medical research? And that was the spirit of the recommendation of the Independent Review. I always felt, you know, that Aussie kind of uh, embraced that reluctantly, uh, gave it very little attention, very little funding. And um, there is opportunity to do a lot more. Obviously the sector is uh, campaigning on it, and now you've got this big announcement by Abbott. I did hear Abbott on the radio before the budget talking about the benefits of this fund for future generations of Australia and for the world. So that's... I, I haven't been able to follow up as to whether there is any actual stream within that fund. But there is, within NHMRC, there is a stream for global medical research, and I think that's it's a great opportunity to do more global medical research, and the government could count that uh, towards the ODA target. So, yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And good that you raised that, Dave, and uh, we should look a lot more at uh, what that fund uh, has to offer, and we have a long way to go in, you know, rethinking aid, and, and a big part of that, I think is around local medical uh, research. Um, just what I before, just one thing on uh, that whole issue of departmental spending. One thing they told us last night, which I think is also up on the web, but they are introducing a cap now. So they're saying now no more than 5% of ODA will go on the administration of ODA. So I think now it's 7%. That's the first time they've had that uh, cap. You know, it's... All the donors report how much they spend on administration, but they all use different methods as possible to know how the government's uh, this. On the one hand, you know, their incentive is to push up those, shift as many departmental costs to the aid budget as possible, right? Because they've got to spend that aid anyway. They may as well charge their budget to it. But they seem to be taking you know, the approach they want to show they're kind of lean and mean and they're going to keep it at 5%. Uh, anyway, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but it's an interesting uh, development on that, on that front.
4: Can I jump in and talk to the inequality piece? And I I acknowledge that you asked for a quality researcher, but you'll just have to do with me for a moment. Um, I I completely agree with you. I think it's something very important. So I'll just focus in on the the piece around the role of private sector. And um, while the parliamentary inquiry is still going on, I think there's a... in, In the recommendation that we put forward from the IDC, one of them was that we need to make sure that, you know, there's some good approaches, principles, concepts, that is, you know, the the foundation of the aid program and, and they must continue, even be strengthened for sure. So if we're going to start bringing in new and different actors, either domestically or within the uh, countries where we're working, we can't walk away from the expectations about, you know, those who are supporting, contributing, or part of the delivery of the aid program and making sure that core principles are monitored, measured and, and focused on. And clearly, <coughs> inequality in all of its forms, not just from a gender dimension, but in all of its forms, um, must be, um, people must be held to account to make those work, I believe. Please, yeah, nice on this. Okay. I think we have to take one or two
5: more questions. Please hang up And okay. um, do you have else? you do. yes. Okay, do. Thanks for letting me like go. But my, my question is, Spent an end of an era with this rise in the Australian aid program. There's a return, if you look at GNI, down to going down to 0.29%, probably, which is probably more an average, I would guess, over the last 20 years. My question, though, is is this as good as it gets globally? Are we actually at the end of an era of uh, the aid programs, aspirations for 0.7. The UK is kind of an outlier, but this is more than just post-GFC austerity blues. Uh, if you look at the rise of new donors, the, the, the multiple sources of income, the concessional loans, uh, is really, uh, we're in a sort of fundamental systemic change here. It's a question for all the panelists. Thank you, Nancy Ways and
6: um, Stephen, you made the observation that the tiny increase to ANCP, the other um, okay, NGO corporation the partnership agreement, um, really quest- made questionable the government's commitment to partner more with NGOs. So I've welcome yours and other people on the panel's views on why the government hasn't fulfilled that commitment, um, despite the independent review of aid effectiveness, uh, evaluating the programme quite highly and recommending or do you think this might be an indication that other areas of a program will be opened up um, for application by a wide range of partners, including NGOs, including so on? the back to panel. All right, thank
3: you. I can have a go. I think, yeah, thank Mark, thank you for that. I think, you know, we, we really appreciate having Tony's macro context and it'd be good to have a global context. Unfortunately, Robin Davies got on a plane yesterday. Thank <laughs> you, so he's a <laughs> global aid expert, um, but we will find next year to have a segment on global aid. If We do do a update every year, and I think what Robin would say if he was here would be that the global aid situation is pretty flat. Uh, in fact, to our surprise, global aid actually increased last year in real terms. So that was a sort of surprisingly positive outcome after two years of small declines. But when you look deeper in the numbers, it's uh, lending programs. And they're not very concessional lending programs, so we really question sort of the quality of that, as, at least as aid. Um, but yeah, I think the global picture for OECD aid, you know, would be pretty consistent with the coalition uh, original commitment, right, which was to keep aid flat in real terms. You know, we haven't yet got to the stage where we're seeing a sustained you know, fall in, in aid. And that's just OECD aid, because if you look at non-OECD aid, it continues to increase. In fact, we've just done some work. If you use purchasing Power Parity, the Indian aid program is now as big as the Australian aid program. So we are in a changing uh, aid world. Um, yeah, Nancy's point. I think uh, I mean, someone said to me it was kind of status quo budget. Uh, that Although there are quite a few allocation changes, so, I don't know, some things have changed, but quite a lot stays the same. I guess that status quo comment was about things in terms of partners. Like, no real change on NGOs, no real change in our multilaterals. And I, I guess that the government had been signaling that. Joe Hockey made this kind of panic response, right, when they cut the budgets like, don't expect me to get me well euros But after election night, you know, that that was just him, I think, coming up with something on the spot. And, uh, you know, through her speeches, Julie Bishop's indicated, you know, she's actually open to working with all parties if they can uh, indicate, if they can show effectiveness. And, yeah, in a tight budget situation where you're not increasing, you know, there are limits to how much you can... Reallocate. If you give more to someone, you are going to give less to someone else. But I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head with your last remark that it's going to be through country programs. My, you know, since talking a little bit is that country programs, perhaps they've, they've gone a lot working through multilaterals at the country level, and some of that, I think there's a pulling back from that, and that's some space that could be filled, either by contractors or by, and or by NGOs. And that was
2: a feature, under a the-
6: Former coalition government, so we would expect to see that. we have any final questions? Uh, yeah, Gareth, uh, full uh, If we can concentrate our aid program in the area with high per capita incomes compared with many other parts of the world growing per capita incomes, uh, how much innovation are we going to
4: need to make a really impact people's lives?
6: Thanks, John Corford International Minister of Agence, okay? One very specific question, and then a question for observations. In the East Timor allocation, the total ADA has gone down quite significantly. DFAT expenditure hasn't. I wonder if anyone could give us an insight into where that might be coming from. The second one is to acknowledge, as others have done, that there is a lot of language around the importance of with girls, but almost a complete absence of any sense. Of the way in which integration of gender into the aid programme as a whole will help and work to ensure that the whole of the aid programme does heavy lifting on, um, to use the treasurer's uh, phrase, on progressing gender equality. So it's there as a policy priority, um, but it seems to be being handled by some references to standalone uh, issues targeted specifically on women. And there is no evidence of the way in which it is going to, for example, be brought into action for training issues or into practice of business development activities to make sure that they meet the needs of the whole population rather than just some of them. Um, And I wondered how you think uh, increased effectiveness on this and then general quality might be achieved by that better integration.
2: And Are there any others around? No? Okay. Just to Garth's point on um, directing aid towards these middle-income countries, I think a lot of innovation is going to be needed. This is different. This is new. And Australia is in a really good position, actually, to lead on some of this thinking. Um, And it's something that NGOs think a lot about. And obviously, there's lots of other actors who are thinking about this. So hopefully, we are in a good position to lead on the innovation and that we're prepared to take those steps.
3: Well, uh, uh, Mark, I want to give you that uh, 0.29. We, um, you know, the G and I ratio? you, we think it's 0.3. Why do you rub it in? Um, But yeah, on your point, uh, yeah, we were just uh, in Indonesia, I went to Indonesia a couple of weeks ago, and Robin, looking at the aid program. Australia totally stands out right, as the only, there's JICA, Japan there's Australia, the only two large bilateral donors in Indonesia and Australia just dominates the aid scene. So it is, it's a risky position, you know, when you're such a large donor and you think it could kind of all come unstuck very quickly. So it is going to be a challenge for Australia to <coughs> maintain a half a billion dollar aid program in Indonesia let alone maintain an effective half a billion dollar aid program. Yeah, I can only say because there's a Ma- major challenge both in Asia and in the Pacific for different reasons and uh, that's uh, so good to have that on the agenda Yeah, and on Joe's point on gender I think uh, you know one encouraging thing is that the agenda has never been so heavily highlighted in the aid uh, literature you know if you look on the web they kind of you know now it's sort of it's, it's private sector, government, self education gender. and gender would never have got that kind of prominence and I think that will push Uh, all other initiatives to take gender seriously as well. So I think the, you know, if you're focused on gender, I think this minister and this government is very strong on gender in the aid program that will
4: have, you know, pretty large effects. I agree, and I think, Joan, you talked about it in the context of, you know, again, aid for trade or whatever terms are being used. And if you look at the the terms of reference for the inquiry, that's in whatever state it is, it's singled out (coughs) a particular attention to you know the gender conversation, and so I think that's very important because I, um, I agree with you. It's an area that we, we can't allow to put to risk what, what has gone for before positively. Um, and I think that if, as we're being told, that there's going to be continued conversations in finalising what that inquiry comes out with, I think we really need to keep that conversation alive, specifically about that topic. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Well, I think we've we'll um, Thanks again for all your fantastic questions, and thanks for joining us. If you check out the Dead policy blog, we'll have one of our authors up there, devpolicy.org. And we'll also you presentations from today up on our website as well, and chat.com. So please join me now and make our hands up. Thank you. I'm very You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.